0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Uh, if you've been here for a little while, you, you, you probably know already that, uh, that I grew up in Tennessee, in, in East Tennessee, and one of the things that uh, that was kind of typical for people who grew up in East Tennessee, for kids who grew up in East Tennessee, uh, was to uh, partake in swimming at the the local you know sinkhole or the, the the quarry or one of the many rivers that were kind of around where I grew up. And now there were many places uh, that uh, my friends and I used to swim. That was Kind uh, of littered with warning signs about either not getting too close to a waterfall, or, or kind of be uh, to, to be aware of rocks that are underneath the surface, or warnings that the water was just simply unsafe to, to swim in. Especially if you're near Oak Ridge, you'd probably you'll come out of the water with like a third arm or something like that because of the power plant there. But uh, being the responsible teenager that uh, that I was, and hanging out with only the most reputable people. What do you think we did when we saw those warning signs? <coughs> How dare you? How dare you? We heeded them, of course. Why would you think otherwise? No, actually, you guys were right. Jared, you were right. We, we actually just kind of pretended that they weren't there. We pretended that we went, uh, went momentarily blind and just kind of walked right by them. And we went swimming. Uh, We went swimming a lot in these different watering holes and rivers and things like that that we weren't supposed to be swimming in, but it didn't really take too long before we saw on the news that another group of friends did the same thing that, that we did. They went swimming in this one particular area, and they ignored the signs of the rocks underneath the surface, and we found out that one of these teenagers got severely, severely hurt by jumping into the water, kind of diving in and uh, had to spend quite a long time in the hospital because of it. Now, I tell you all this <clears throat> because one of the things that we can often do to our detriment is to ignore warning signs. And we can see them and we may take a, a mental note of them, but overall we just kind of you know, look away or just kind of do our own thing despite what they might say. And for instance, how many of you read the warning labels on every single thing that you ever buy? Joe, I believe it. Joe, yeah. Okay, one of us, all right. We can learn from you, Joe. <laughs> That's right. But we can at times, unfortunately, do the same thing with Scripture. And the Bible is full of various warnings, but sometimes when we read these warnings, we kind of do what I did as a teenager, and we, we blow right by them, and we don't pay them any, any attention. But when we do that, we really do it to our own detriment, to our own harm. And this morning we come across one of those warning passages in Scripture. And after explaining to these primarily Jewish believers that one of the reasons why they're having a hard time grasping the teaching of Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek is because they have become lazy in their faith, the author gives them a warning by pointing to a group of people, not, not pointing to them, but to a different group of people who once claimed to be believers but have since fallen away. And the desire of the author of Hebrews is to uh, have them not be like them, to have the, the readers or the listeners to this sermon not be like this group of people. And so this text is a a warning, as one theologian put it, to not assume that we are secure when our lives have some religious experiences but no growing fruit. It is a warning to flee from surface-level religious experiences to true, solid ground of a real faith that does produce fruit. Now, before we dive into this passage, it's also good to know that it is a fairly controversial passage, which is our favorite here at Redeemer. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ, and and I'm going to really emphasize that, brothers and sisters in Christ who fall on two different sides of, of interpretation when it comes to this passage. In fact, two of the greatest figures... Of the First Great Awakening, John Wesley and George Whitefield, two men who were greatly used by God to bring many, many people to Christ, disagreed on this particular passage. These two great godly men disagreed on this passage. And I say this because when we approach these sorts of passages, even though we may have a specific view on it, and even though we can believe that we are right when it comes to our own understanding of this teaching, we yet still want to approach it with humility. Right? With humility. We don't want to draw swords against our brothers and sisters in Christ who may understand this passage differently, but we do want to pursue truth. And I believe that the truth of this passage can can sometimes be distorted or missed by a quick surface-level glance at it. And this can lead to a great many of Christians losing the confidence that they are called to have in their faith and in their salvation. Now, before we, we go any further... I do want us to pray that the Lord gives us grace and clarity as we look at this passage together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that as believers in Christ, we can unite on the things that are abundantly clear. Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith. Lord, we thank You, Lord, that we can join arms in believing that it is not our righteousness that saves us, because that's an impossibility. We, as we sung, we have no righteousness of our own. But Lord, we have been clothed in Your righteousness. Lord, and on that we can agree. And so Lord, I pray, God, that as we come to this passage in Hebrews 6, this, this difficult passage, Lord, that You give us grace with one another where we may disagree. And give us joyful unity on the things that we do agree on. And Lord, I pray that if if there are those in in the congregation this morning who have a a different view of this passage, Lord, that they they hear me with grace, Lord, that they hear me with love. And God, ultimately, ultimately, Lord, I pray that you bring about unity this morning so that we we can come together and see what your word has to say. And Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. So when it comes to real estate, weren't expecting that segue, were you? When it comes to real estate, most people you speak to, even though they're not uh, in the business themselves, they could still tell you what the number one rule of real estate is, right? Do you know what what it is for real estate? Boom. Location, location, location. Now, when it comes to biblical interpretation, biblical interpretation, coming to understand what a particular passage of Scripture is actually saying, not what you feel like it's saying, but what the author's original intent is, there is a very important rule. And it's, it's similar to real estate, but, but rather than location or capri, uh, this rule is context, context, context. Context, context, context. One of the biggest mistakes that someone can make when they are reading the Bible and trying to understand what it says is taking a passage out of context. And there's a a huge danger in doing this. And without understanding the surrounding context of a particular verse, you can draw from it a meaning that actually has nothing to do with the text itself is actually trying to convey. And so what you want to do as you you open up your Bible and as you begin to to read from it is to recognize that the verse that you're reading right right here and now was not written in a vacuum, right? It wasn't written in a vacuum. You want to read the passage before it? You want to read the passage that, that comes after it? And you want to understand where the passage that you are reading fits within the wider scope of of the other books of the Bible. Ignoring the context of a particular passage is really the the first step of of misinterpretation. And I believe that that is often the problem when it comes to this passage here in, in Hebrews 6. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we look at our passage this morning, that we have to keep context in mind. And so let's take a look at it, but to get kind of the the flow of thought, let's begin with verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, I really encourage you to open them up to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to start with the very first chapter, or very first verse rather, and go through verse 3 first. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So just a quick pause. So there is an utter dependency that we are to have on God in order to see this pressing on to maturity come about. We, we need His aid to uh, help us with our growth. It is Him that gives the growth. That's Paul's belief in 1 Corinthians 3. But then the author moves away. right? He moves away about speaking of his audience and he begins to describe a case involving a different group of people. An entirely different group of people. And So take a look at verses 4 through 6. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And so the author of Hebrews here in verses four through six, stops speaking about his audience and he begins telling them of a specific scenario of a certain group of people who have seemed to have this incredible religious experience and and have been the receiver of, of some of God's wonderful blessings. And yet despite these experiences and despite being the receiver of some of these blessings, the people the author is speaking of have fallen away. And in their falling away, as verse 6 tells us, they are crucifying for a second time Jesus. And they are holding Him up to contempt. And we're going to get into what that actually means here in a few minutes. And it is these people that the author says are impossible to restore to repentance. Now just in case you're unfamiliar with, with what this word repentance actually means, it is simply the heartfelt turning away from, from rebellious sin, those, those things that are displeasing to God and against His will, to thankful obedience in Christ. To thankful obedience. Not not legalistic obedience, doing it just because you think you're going to earn your salvation, but a thankful obedience to Christ. That's what repentance means. And so that is the situation It's a bleak situation, right? That is the bleak situation of those in this case that the author of Hebrews is describing to his audience. Those who have experienced great blessing, who have fallen away and therefore in a way have crucified Christ yet again and are holding Him in contempt and are therefore not able to be restored to repentance. Now, here is the big question that divides some believers. Were the people that the author is speaking of in this passage ever true believers? That's the question. Were they ever true believers? And there are some, like John Wesley, who believe that verses 4 through 6 are describing those who are true believers, who have lost their salvation. Wesley himself said of this passage, on this authority, meaning this passage, I believe a saint may fall away." that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall from God as to perish everlastingly. That was from John Wesley. And just looking at these three verses alone, it makes absolute sense why he would believe this. And though I disagree, I I have a a, a sort of sympathy for this view. Those with the Wesleyan view, will, will call it, would look at the four or five descriptions or blessings presented in verses 4 and 5 and say that those blessings can only be experienced by someone who is a true believer. And so let's quickly take a look at them. The first we see is in verse 4, and it is enlightenment. Enlightenment. Now, the, the, again, we'll just call it the Wesleyan view, just for continuity. The Wesleyan view would say that this enlightenment is speaking of the enlightenment that one gains by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to the truth of the gospel. Essentially, they have been enlightened to who Christ really is. Now, those on both sides basically kind of combine the the second and third blessing in verse 4. They kind of see it as one and the same, that the heavenly gift is the sharing of the Holy Spirit. But those in the Wesleyan Persuasion believe that the sharing of the Holy Spirit is speaking of the actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that only those who are truly saved, that those who are truly born again, experience. They they believe that that these two phrases together means salvation, right? Now thirdly, in verse 5, they have tasted the goodness of the Word, meaning that as a true believer, they have seen that there is goodness and truth, in Scripture, in the Bible. And lastly, they have tasted the powers of the age to come, meaning they have experienced the miracles and Uh, amazing acts of the Spirit that so frequently accompanied the preaching of the gospel in the early church. And maybe they themselves were were even healed or or had had a demon cast out of them, something along those lines. Now, all of these things combined is why those from the Wesleyan Persuasion believe that these are true believers in this case who had true saving faith, who experienced salvation but then lost it. And they fell away by turning their back on Christ. Now, I said that I have a sympathetic view of this. I have a, a, a sympathetic uh, outlook on, on this particular view because just looking at these verses in isolation, you could, you could easily see how someone would come to that conclusion. However, I do believe that there are some, some problems with this particular interpretation. And I also believe it is actually worth saying that many who would still consider themselves uh, Wesleyan also disagree with Wesley's view of this particular passage. So if you're here this morning saying like, well, I'm, I'm from the Wesley tradition, but I don't necessarily agree with this, you're not alone. There's some who don't agree with this particular uh, portion of his, of his beliefs. And that can be the frustrating thing with, with labels, Right? People don't always fit perfectly within these theological boxes. And there are several things that John Calvin said that I don't agree with. Now, I would consider myself somewhat of a, a Calvinist in some sense, but I believe that he was, he was pretty wrong on, on things like infant baptism. But think back to what I said is one of the most important rules when, when reading our Bibles. What did I say that was? <laughs> Location, yeah. Context, context, context. Since God, and this is something I think all believers in this church will agree on and unite on, since God is the ultimate author of the Bible and since God is infallible and true, there can be no basic inconsistency within Scripture. And so with all grace and love, I do believe this interpretation does not take into the consideration the clear passages within Scripture that teach of the eternal security of those who are born again and possess genuine saving faith. And I do believe it does not take into consideration the the rest of the teaching that's found even within the book of Hebrews itself, which includes the the, the rest of chapter 6 even. And so with that being said, I, I want us to First, take a look at verses 7 and 8 here in, in chapter 6, which I believe begins to shed light on this passage because the purpose of these two verses, of verses 7 and 8, is to essentially illustrate and, and help us see a little bit more clearly the people that the author is speaking about in verses 4, 5, and 6. So let us look at those verses. It says, For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but it bears thorns and thistles. Oh, sorry, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so I believe that the picture here is of, of two different types of land. The first type of land is that which receives the rain and produces good vegetation. The second is that of a land that receives the rain, but instead of producing vegetation that is useful and nutritious, this land bears thorns and thistles, and the end result of that is it being destroyed. Now I want you to take note that this land is not one that that grew vegetation for a while, but then lost it after it started producing thorns and thistles. But rather, at no point did this land ever produce any sort of good vegetation. I believe the point of this illustration is, is this, is that you can sit within the church and you can have these wonderful religious experiences You can even come to to some understanding of the gospel. You can even come to recognize some of the truths that are found within God's Word and, and think that they're good and even see God's hand at work. But if you turn your back on Christ, if all of this wonderful rain has fallen upon you, but if you turn your back on Christ, you find that all of those wonderful blessings never truly produced a new life within you. Now this teaching is actually remarkably similar to one that Jesus Himself gave in Matthew 17 called the parables of parable of the soils. Do you remember that one? In this parable, Jesus is talking about the different experiences people can have when they hear the gospel. Some are like the hard pathway, and when they hear the gospel, they don't really understand it, they're kind of hardened to it, and so the, so the enemy, Satan, snatches it away and gets them to focus on other things that are not of eternal importance. Others are like the rocky soil, and when they hear the gospel, they first seem to receive it with joy and excitement, but when difficulty or, or persecution arises, they immediately leave the faith because the gospel didn't actually take root Others are like the ground that is thorny and full of briars. And they hear the gospel, but they are just too caught up in the world and and pursuing material gain. And the Word of God is choked down and, and proves unfruitful to them. But then there's the last soil. And this one soil is the only one, the only soil, that when the seed of the gospel is sown, bears fruit gives true life. There's only one type of person who will hear the gospel and and experiences new life, and that is a person who bears fruit. And friends, I believe that is the picture that we are meant to see here in chapter 6 as well. Remember that verses 7 and 8 are saying that there are two kinds of land. One that brings forth vegetation and one that doesn't. One that brings forth life and one that doesn't. And I believe that the author of Hebrews is saying that the group of people that is being spoken of in verses 4, 5, and 6 is not some, some third type of land that produces life for a while but then just loses it. I believe that is entering in a, a new category, a new type of land that is simply not present within the text. I believe that when we look at these verses, our minds are to go back to the parable of Jesus and recognize that the one who has fallen away is of the first three soils, is is of that barren land. And for this reason, I do not believe that this group that the author is speaking of in verses 4 through 6 are meant to be understood as those who have experienced a true salvation. And I actually also believe that verse 9 reinforces this as well. Verse 9. The author moves away from speaking of this other group and brings his attention back on his audience, and he says this, Though we speak in this way, meaning that there are some in the church who have claimed to be Christian but have since fallen away, yet in your case, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And what are those better things? It is those things that belong to salvation. That belong to salvation. Now, this is very important, and you don't want to miss this because, again, this helps clarify what's going on in the previous verses. The key phrase here that you don't want to miss is things that belong or things that accompany salvation. You see that phrase? meaning that everything that the author spoke of before, pertaining to the group he described as being barren land, those who fell away from the faith, were not things that accompanied true salvation, did not belong to salvation. But now that he is speaking again to and of his audience, the author feels sure of better things for them. The things that will, with certainty, accompany true saving faith. Those things that belong to salvation, that are inseparable from salvation. And verses 10 through 12 describe some of those things that belong to that true salvation, which includes the fruit of love that is brought forth in the name of Christ as they serve the saints, meaning other believers, other Christians. And in verse 11, the author says that his desire for these believers that are either listening to this sermon or or reading this book is to eagerly seek to have the full assurance of hope to the end. And it is my contention that assurance of hope, meaning the, the assurance of the hope within us, which is Christ Jesus, which is salvation, is one of the most beautiful things that belongs to those who are truly saved. He wants them to be assured of the hope that is within them in Christ until the very day that they die. And verse 12 says that the product of this wonderful hope is that it doesn't lead to to a sluggishness of faith, but rather it leads to being imitators it leads to a heart that desires to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the fulfillment of the promises that belong to those in Christ to be an inheritor of those who have gotten those promises of eternal salvation those promises of being uh, of living forever in the presence of God be imitators when we look back at church history whether it be whether it be Wesley whether it be Whitfield that assurance of hope that knowledge that, Lord, you are going to bring us to the end. You are going to help us make it to the end of that race. That should make us want to be like those people from church history, be like those those wonderful saints that we know in our lives right now that are so faithful. Not to be sluggish, but to be like those people. To be zealous in our faith. But summed up, the author is saying, that fruitlessness and apostasy, meaning falling away, do not accompany true salvation, but better things do. Better things do. Fruitfulness and assurance accompany salvation. And there are many other passages within the book of Hebrews alone that preach to this point. If you've got time, I, I encourage you to go back and re-listen to our sermon on Hebrews three fourteen. Or if you don't mind spoilers, flip ahead to Hebrews ten. At our pace, it'll be like a year before we get there anyway. <laughs> Hebrews ten verse fourteen, where we are told that by one offering, he, meaning Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And friends, as soon as you become born again, as soon as you place your faith in Christ Jesus, you begin that process of sanctification. It doesn't start later on in life. It starts immediately when you become a believer. But He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is a present tense, meaning an ongoing action. As Piper has said, if Hebrews 6 meant that you could be justified by the blood of Christ and then lose that standing with God, then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't really have any meaning. But rather, it says that for those who are now being sanctified, meaning those who are now indwelt by the Spirit and are born of God and are growing in holiness by faith, the authoring of Christ on the cross has perfected that person for all time. And the culmination of that perfection is when we're on the other side of glory or when Christ comes back. But He is actively perfecting you now for all time. And He has perfected you for all time. Not, not, not simply momentarily. Not simply for just a few years, as long as you, as you keep up the good work. But for all time. It is a, it's a done deed. And so friends, again, with, with, with grace and love, if you disagree with me on this, I, I believe that the Wesleyan understanding of Hebrews 6 does not allow for Hebrews 10, verse 14... And there are many other passages outside of Hebrews that lead me to believe that Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, is not speaking of true believers as well. And I'll just list a, a sampling and, and put them on the screen for you to look at. And I can, I can email these to you later so that you can go home and, and study them within their full context. But let me just run down some of these. Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. Jude 24 through 25, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 1 John 2, 19, 1 Peter 1, 5, Philippians 1, 6 and 2, 13, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, and to go Old Testament on you, Ezekiel 11, 19, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 24, 7, 32, 40. And we'll leave those on there so that you can copy them down. But all of these passages speak to the confidence that we can have in our faith, to the confidence that we can have in our faith, to the assurance of our salvation. And so for all of these reasons, as I have said before, I do not believe that Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, are meant to convey to us that a true believer, someone who has truly put their faith in Christ Jesus, has been and who has been born again and has experienced actual salvation, can fall away from faith and lose that salvation. And we're not called to have a heart of fear about these things. We're called to have confidence. Not, not in ourselves, to, to keep ourselves within the faith. Confidence in the one who keeps us safely secured in his hand, Christ Jesus. So, with all that being said, I want us to just quickly kind of reevaluate verses 4, 5, and 6 in light of the context of the rest of Hebrews and, and the rest of, of Scripture at large. And so, looking for, uh, again at verse 4, those who have been enlightened. I believe, most likely refers to people who have, like in the parable of the soils, come to see the truth of the gospel. They come to to see that it is true. But friends, it is one thing to recognize something as true or something to be true, uh, to be enlightened to the fact that something is right, but then actually placing your faith in it. Those are two very different things. All of us know people, perhaps family members, who have been repeatedly exposed to the truth of the gospel. Many who who understand what it means and can articulate the claims of Christ with incredible precision, yet refuse to put their trust in Him as Lord and Savior. As scholar and pastor Sam Storms has said, Thus, Whereas all true Christians have been enlightened, not all those who are enlightened are true Christians. And secondly, we come again to those who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And this certainly points to a genuine spiritual experience. But many have religious experiences without them being genuine saving experiences. There are those who have been blessed by the Spirit by being in close association with genuine believers. They may have even felt conviction placed upon them by the Holy Spirit. And though they may have shared in these heavenly gifts and and shared in some experience of the Holy Spirit, this does not necessitate salvation. Matthew 7, verses 22-23 reminds us of an extremely important principle. Matthew 7, verses 22 through 23. That even though someone has experienced the workings of the Holy Spirit and even has received blessings from him in some sort of fashion, doesn't mean that they themselves are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those in Matthew 7 preached, right? They prophesied, they performed miracles, they cast out demons in the name of Christ. All things that you would think only those who are saved would be able to do. And yet Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Part from me, you evildoers. So they were clearly not saved. Now, I'm combining the last two points of the tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. But these are individuals who have been around in the church. They have seen the good things that God has done. They have seen the good things that are within the Word of God, which are all things that unbelievers are capable of doing. But because they haven't truly placed their faith in Him, because they haven't truly experienced salvation, they fall away. They fall away. They may have even... even said with their lips that that they trust in God, but in their hearts they have not. And therefore, they fall from the faith. In fact, their apostasy, meaning that falling away from faith, was proof of the falsity of their initial proclamation of faith. This is the lesson that we see from 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. Which, when talking of apostates, talking of people who left the faith, left the church. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Why? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And turning away from Christ, this is where we get to the brutal part. We are told that they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt, to disdain, to hatred. Now in explaining the re of Christ, I'm going to kind of steal unashamedly from John Piper because I think he puts it so well and so succinctly. He says this, "...when a person chooses against Christ and turns back to the way of the world and the sovereignty of His own will and the fleeting pleasures of earth, he says, in effect, that these are worth more than Christ is worth. They are worth more than the love of Christ and the wisdom of Christ and the power of Christ and all that God promises to be for us in Christ. And when a person says that, it is the same thing as saying, I agree with the crucifiers of Jesus. Because what could shame Christ more today than to have someone taste His goodness and wisdom and power and then say, no, there is something better and more to be desired. That puts Him to a public shame. So to reject Christ in this way, in effect, is to take up hammer and nails and beat them into His hands and feet to make common cause with those who crucified him and to mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Now remember, all of the descriptions of the one who falls away is sandwiched between the phrase, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And the word impossible there can't be avoided as much as I wish it could be. It is there, and so we we have to deal with it. Now I believe that one of the things that we have to recognize is that the author here is again speaking of a very specific case. He is speaking of a very specific people. And the problem is not that It is impossible for God to forgive this sin of apostasy that they have committed, but I believe rather that the emphasis is on their own unwillingness to repent. The message of Hebrews 6, as one scholar noted, is not that those who fall away have committed sins that God will not forgive. It is that the hearts of those who have fallen away have become so hard that they will not repent though they have seen the wonderful workings of God, even though they have been members of a church, even though they may have been preachers or or maybe even ministry workers, remember what the state of the heart is of those who commit apostasy. It's not simply that they become indifferent toward Christ, right? That's not the picture that that we're given. They don't become indifferent. But rather, they willingly, willingly put Him to open shame Hebrews 12, verses 16 through 17, speaks of a similar warning, and they actually use the example of Esau, saying, "...let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." The scripture makes it clear, brothers and sisters, that genuine repentance, genuine repentance will never be rejected by God. But because Esau was immoral and godless, as Hebrews 12 says, he would not submit to God and genuinely repent of his sins, even though he knew that it was right. These are the people Hebrews 6 is speaking of. Those who know the blessings of God, yet reject them and continue their life in a refusal to repent. Those are the ones who cannot be restored. Now, I know that was uh, an incredibly heavy passage. There are a a few more things, though, that I, I do want us to take away from it before we conclude our time together. And the first is that I want to make it clear to you, very clear to you, that the veracity or the truthfulness of the Christian faith is not dependent on those who claim to be Christian. Do you understand that? The truth of the Christian faith is not dependent on those who claim to be Christian. There are many Christian leaders out there who have fallen away from the faith. Sadly, there are many, many examples of this. But simply because some of those who have once claimed to be Christian and have since turned their back on Christ and have fallen away and have gone on to open shame or mock God in whatever capacity, that does not change the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's Word. Far too often we hang our assurance of faith, of our faith, on Christian leaders. But instead of putting our assurance in them, friends, we are called to put our assurance where it actually belongs, in Christ, who, as we will see next week, is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. It's not me. It's not Pastor Paul or or Pastor Ethan. We are not the sure and steadfast anchor of your souls. Only Christ can be that. Secondly, if you are here this morning and you are afraid that you might be that person that is within the church who has experienced the the blessings, the wonderful blessings of God, but may fall away later, right now, is to to do maybe one of two things. And the first is to to heed this warning. Don't let it go by you. Heed this warning and ask the Lord to reveal to you if you have truly, 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 Put your faith in Christ and repented of your sins. And if you have not done that, man, I, I encourage you to do so. Paul says that it is today that is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised to even be able to leave this building. Not because we're going to keep you or anything, but, but you're, you're going to have a body issue like Lewis. But secondly, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have truly repented of your sins, if you truly have a desire right now to put to death your old self and and put on the new self that you are in Christ and to please Him and to strive toward maturity in faith, then I want you to praise God. Because this passage in verses 4-6 through is, is not speaking of you. You are those who the author is speaking of in verse 9 and 12. And that the things that belong to you aren't the things that belong to those who are not true believers, who have not experienced true salvation, but the things that belong to you are those better things that belong to salvation. Which includes, by the grace of God, an assurance of your faith that you will make it to the end. And next week, we're going to be looking at the beautiful certainty that we can have in those promises that God has made to His people. But for now, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for giving us grace as we made it through that passage. Lord, I prayed and and prayed and and toiled over this passage, Lord, (laughs) all week long. And Lord, I know that there are some in this church that are going to continue to do so after today. And so Lord, I just pray for Your grace. Lord, I I pray, Lord, that for those who are true believers in this church, that You give them a certainty of their salvation, Lord. And for those who... God, that you may be revealing that they've been coming to church, that they've they've experienced these these wonderful religious experiences, Lord, but but they haven't actually put their faith in you, that they haven't actually repented of their sin. Lord, I pray, God, that, that they heed this warning. Lord, that they that they don't turn away from your face right now. That they don't fall away. Lord, but that they repent. And put their faith in You. Because there is a glorious salvation that You have made available in, made available in Your Son. And God, Lord, I, I also pray, even after this sermon, Lord, as we're, as we're getting together and, and mingling, if we have different opinions still on, on this passage, Lord, I pray that You just grant us unity. Lord, help us, help us recognize, Lord, that we can have grace with one another. But Lord, we just, we love you. And we thank you so much for your Son that you sent to die for us. We pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.